The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of people most to be pitied. This is the word of God. Hey, if you're new or visiting with us, my name is Bryce Johnson. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, it's a joy to stand here and open up God's word with you. Hey, if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, early on in college, uh, for me, I had a cousin come up to me one day, and he said, hey, you've really got to watch this video. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change everything uh, that you know. Um, and so this is, this is the early days of YouTube. Um, so, you know, 2005, 2006 or so, and videos were just taking off. And so people all of a sudden had access to uh, content that would have been harder to come by, right? And, and it, was just, it was just there, one place to house any content that you wanted to see. So we sat down and we watched this video, and this video went to great lengths to try to prove that 9-11 was an inside job. Right, and so this was this long video that, that had all these, uh, you know, uh, all these proofs uh, to show that the U.S. government had orchestrated September 11th for some nefarious aim. And he's like, okay, wait, wait, now you got to watch this other one, right? And so, so we watched another video that that showed all the reasons why the moon landing was fake, right? That 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 never happened. And we went down this rabbit hole of of video after video, conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory. And my cousin looks at me at some point throughout, you know, the, the, the four hours that we were, we're staring at the screen, and he says, everything we know is a lie, right? Just, just these big eyes. And the question posed, right, the question that these videos want you to consider is this, what if what you know to be true is actually not true, right? What if what we believe is a lie? And that's the question that Paul wants to ask the church in Corinth in the passages we, uh, that we read this morning, not to, not to throw out conspiracy theories, per se, but to actually cause you to consider, hey, what if what you know to be true is actually not true? Now, as we've walked through the letter of 1 Corinthians for nearly a year now, Paul has been addressing a bunch of behavioral issues, right? The behavioral issues that are just plaguing this church, issues like, um, like disunity, right, and, and uh, division in the church, issues like, hey, you shouldn't get drunk when you're taking communion, Right? Uh, issues like how do we practice the spiritual gifts in order as we are gathered as the body? And he's been, all along, he's been correcting behavioral issues. But then we get to chapter 15 where we find ourselves this morning, and he's not addressing a specific behavioral issue. What he wants to address is their beliefs. And he wants to correct their beliefs, and specifically their beliefs on resurrection. Because beliefs always have behavioral consequences. Right? What you believe will inevitably impact your actions, right? If you believe that uh, you're unsafe, you're, you're going to walk with caution. 
right? You, you, you're going to do things uh, to, that, that bolster your beliefs. If you believe that your sports team, right, will succeed this season, then you will, I don't know, place bets. You'll, you'll, you'll wear the things. You'll, you'll watch a game with hope. Your beliefs always impact your actions. Now, there are some in the church in Corinth that were denying the teaching, right, this foundational teaching that Christians would be raised from the dead. Right, that one day is coming when Christians will be raised from the dead. And so Paul wants to address this belief head on. And in our text this morning, he's going to explore the implications of their beliefs. Right? If resurrection happens, then hey, not even Jesus has been raised. And if that's true, then, then we really don't have any hope. And it's a sobering passage. It's a sobering passage that we often leave for Easter morning. Right? This, is, this is often an Easter morning text. In fact, I love reading this text uh, around the time of Easter because it just reminds me of the truth of the resurrection. But it's not Easter. We're in the middle of July. We're still going to explore the reality of the resurrection. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to march through the text. Right? We're going to read verse by verse. We're going to march through the text. I'm going to make a few observations as we go. And we're going to see the significance of Jesus' resurrection and what it means for us. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that you pray for me, and we'll dive right in. God, I thank you for your word, your word that speaks to us, your word that convicts us where we need to be convicted, uh, that challenges us on our assumptions, um, that comforts us with truth. And so, God, would you do incredible work this morning? Would you conform us more and more to the image of Jesus? And would you meet us, God, I pray, uh, Lord, that, that more than my words, that your Holy Spirit would speak and meet us where we're at. In your son's name, amen. Amen. If you have a copy of the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we we'll start in verse 12. Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The message of the gospel, as we saw last week, the message of the gospel is a proclamation that Jesus is raised from the dead. Right? This proclamation is what is being proclaimed, what is being declared as good news. That's what the gospel means. The gospel means good news. But this proclamation is not just a made-up story or, or, um, or myth that's been passed along like a game of telephone. Right? Sometimes that, that, that's how we hear, or maybe we even feel that the Christian story, the gospel story is. Right? Like, like people just kind of pass it along. It's just this myth. It's one thing right? if someone, if one person is sharing this news. It's one thing if it's like some book that you don't know the origins of that declares something uh, as fact. But I was struck this week at how much space um, and words Paul uses to show us the reality of the resurrection. And so in verse uh, 3, where we were last week, Paul says this. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, right? So, so he spends two lines unpacking that Christ died for our sins, that he was raised up. All this lines up with scriptures. And we could spend a sermon, we could spend a month, right, unpacking the truth of that. The scripture that, that shows his significance, that shows who he is, all that means. If all That's all that we had. We just had that profound news. That would be reason to worship. But then he goes on. He goes on. He says, then he appeared, and he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Uh, I like how he tells you, hey, some of them have died. You know, not, not all of them are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Right? 
We've got two lines exploring the, the beauty of this gospel. And then he spends verses 5 through 8 chronicling all the people that saw the resurrected Jesus. To Peter, to the 12 disciples, to over 500 people at once, which sounds like a real event, right? Like you've got 500 people just minding their own business. And then this guy who was executed as a criminal shows up in your midst. Feels like it would make an impression, right? You're probably taking notice of that. Scholars agree that this letter was written probably about 15 to 20 years after the events of the resurrection. And so, so some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. And Paul says, hey, if you don't believe me, don't take my word for it. Go ask them. Go ask them. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. If you don't believe me, go find and ask them. Moreover, Jesus shows himself to his brother James, whom, as far as we know, was not a believer until the resurrection. In fact, the gospel stories share accounts of where Jesus is like, hey, hey Jesus, uh, James was like, Jesus, come, come back in. You're embarrassing us. And then the resurrection happens, and everything changes, right? Because no one walks around believing that your sibling is God. But if they come back to dead, for, from the dead, they, then you start questioning some assumptions, right? And then James becomes a Christian and a leader of the church. Jesus shows himself to the apostles, including Paul. He spends twice the amount of space to bolster the truth, to show them the reality of the resurrection. See, if the resurrection was a lie, all it would have took was for one of those hundreds of people to raise their hands and say, hey, hey, actually, actually, I, I didn't see Jesus. I didn't see him. The Christian movement would have stopped right then. And Paul's not even being subtle or vague about it. It's like, you know, like, oh, yeah, some people saw him. He's like, he's dropping names. He's like, Peter, hey, he saw him. James, he saw him. Ask them. Ask them. See, the resurrection of the dead was not just something that people just gladly believed 2,000 years ago, right? Resurrection of the dead was strange to them as it would be today if someone came to you and said they saw someone come back to life. Paul says, hey, this is real. Literally hundreds of people saw him. So the resurrection of Jesus is not just some powerful metaphor about beauty coming from brokenness. It's not just a metaphor about the hope of spring after the cold of winter. Those things are true, but the resurrection of Jesus is a historical event that changed history. Pastor Tim Keller says it's the hinge on which the story of the world, the story of history turns. It changed the lives of the apostles. That changed Saul from someone who killed Christians, from murdered Christians, into Paul who literally lays down his life in the proclamation of this good news. So if you're here and you're wrestling with, hey, is any of this even real? Is, is any of this good news? Why, why are we even meeting here? Just know that we're not, we're not here dealing with feel-good stories or, 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 or lessons on how to be moral people. We're dealing with history and eyewitness accounts. So you can reject the news that resurrection is good news. You can reject even Jesus as Lord, but the resurrection of Jesus is not just an opinion. It's an actual historical event that was witnessed and documented. All right, back to our text. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there are some Christians who are denying bodily resurrection. The, this reality, this, this, this doctrine that Christians would be resurrected in real, actual bodies. So the Greek philosophy of the day said that, um, hey, the body is bad, the spirit is good, the soul is good, and so when you die, your body goes out into the ground and then it rots, but your soul is good and your soul floats up into heaven. Only souls would be saved. Bodies would rot in the ground. The idea of physical resurrection was offensive to them. 
because it went against everything that they knew. They couldn't fathom that resurrection would happen for the rest of us. Sure, sure, it happened to Jesus, but that was like a one-time event. And so here's my first observation for us. Like the Corinthians, we are prone to ignore parts of the Bible that we dislike or don't understand. Or we're prone to twist or make sense of things just because they don't uh, make sense to us. And so how many times have you read the Bible or you read something and thought, well, that doesn't make sense. Or that's not, that's not logical. Or that's not how I would do it. And so maybe you read the Old Testament and uh, you read stories of war and sacrifice and, and, and you see these depictions of God and you think, man, that, I don't know if I like that picture of God. That, or that doesn't seem to jive with the God of the New Testament. Um, and, and, so, and so you ignore the Old Testament, right? When actually... The same God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God in the Old Testament as you see in the New Testament as he is today. And three-fourths of the Bible is actually the Old Testament. So you can't even understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Or maybe you don't understand um, the, how the Holy Spirit works in his people. And that just feels strange. That feels foreign. That feels uh, too uh, superstitious for you. And so you avoid thinking about that or you avoid practicing his power in your life. When Jesus says we actually need the Holy Spirit working in us so that we could be his witnesses, so we could actually live out new creation life. Or maybe, maybe you can't believe how God would affirm things that seem repulsive to you. How God would affirm things in the Bible that seem to be clear, whether it's about sexual ethics or how we're to radically love those who hate us or how we're supposed to give generously. And so, so you want to just explain away those passages you want to explain away 2,000 years of church history and instead believe what, what actually makes sense in your head. Right? See, the problem is not necessarily that it's wrong to wrestle with things that are hard to understand. We want to wrestle with things. It's what we do when we get to those passages. Uh, I, I, I love this passage in uh, one of Peter's letters, 2 Peter 3, verse 15. Paul writes to this church and he says, And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Listen, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. This is Peter saying, hey, look, look, I get it. There are some things that Paul says it's kind of hard to understand. I don't know if, if, if I fully understand all the time, but this is what ignorant people do. Instead of leaning in and pressing in, they take it and they twist it and it actually leads them to their own destruction. See, the problem is not that you can't bring your questions to the Bible. You can't, it's not that you can't bring your questions to God. The problem is that we don't even question our own questions. The problem is the assumption that our questions are right, the Bible is on trial, right, or scripture is on trial, dog was on trial, and we don't even question our own assumptions, our own philosophies, our own worldviews, our own beliefs. So like the Corinthians, we might not even be aware of how the philosophies and the understandings and the beliefs of our day have even seeped into our own understanding, have subtly seeped in and are the filters through which we even read our own scriptures. And so here's, here's some diagnostic questions for us. Where are the parts of the Bible that you feel uncomfortable with, that you get to and you're prone to just skip over? 
Or, or maybe a better question might be, where are the parts of the Bible that you used to really struggle with, that you used to uh, be uncomfortable with, but now you don't? It could be that you've actually laid down your life and your worldview uh, in uh, submission to God's word. Or could it be that you found a solution that imports a worldview that's apart from the Bible? And you found a solution that actually makes sense to you. Here's another question. Are you processing your questions? Are you processing your doubts? Are you processing your disbeliefs with your Christian community? Or are you hunting from them uh, or hunting for answers on Reddit threads or the corners of the internet? Because, hear me, if you're looking for an alternate view, if you're looking for something that fits with what you like, if you're looking for something that, that, that makes, you're going to find it. You're going to find it, right? If you, if you want to believe that the government's out to get you, you're going to, you're going to find those videos. If, you're going to if you want to find something that, that softens the edges of doctrine or scripture, you're going to find it. But this is why God gives us the gift of other believers, other believers who actually walk with us, who do life with us, who actually know us and know our hearts are able to speak truth into our lives. This is part of what it means to be a body. The Christians had, the, the Corinthians had imposed the philosophy of their day onto Scripture. But the problem was they, they weren't even thinking about the implications of their belief. They weren't even questioning, hey, where does this line of thinking lead me? And so that's what Paul does. That's what Paul does helpfully. Verse 13, he says, okay, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if dead bodies, literally corpses, don't come back to life, if that's our baseline understanding, then following that logic, Jesus has not been raised, right? Paul's just following the logic of their argument. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That, that, that word vain can also be translated as, as empty or worthless, right? So if I were to ask you, hey, what's the defining thing about Christianity, right? What would you say? What's the thing that sets Christianity or following Jesus apart from every other religion, every other worldview, anything else out there? What would you say? What, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe, maybe forgiveness of sins, going to heaven, I, I asked my followers on social media this week, someone said, you know, grace, ch church, you know. Paul's saying that the, the defining thing about Christianity is resurrection, is resurrection. All those other things are right and true and necessary, but without resurrection, listen, the whole thing unravels. The whole thing falls apart. And it's an incredibly honest and bold claim that Paul makes that if they somehow found the body of Jesus somewhere in Palestine, you know, if archaeologists found it and were able to do some DNA testing and figure out, hey, for sure this was Jesus of Nazareth, our faith would fall apart. Our experience of the living God and the community of faith and the hope that we have would all crumble. Because, listen, resurrection is not just the cherry on top, right? It's, just, it's not just another piece of the salvation puzzle. Sometimes we act as if resurrection is like the extra point of the touchdown of the cross. You know, is that, someone told me once I make too many basketball references, and so I'm trying to change it up here. Um, <laughs> but if you don't follow football, right, you, you, you march up the field and you score a touchdown, which score, gives you six points, and then you have a, you know, like 
no, no movement field goal for an extra point, right? Sometimes we think the cross is a touchdown and the uh, resurrection is the field goal, right? It's the extra point. It's the nice to have. But the resurrection is actually the linchpin, right? It's the linchpin that holds our faith together. Without it, everything crumbles. Verse 15, Paul says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Literally, the language is, we are lying against God because we're attributing something to him that he didn't do. We're claiming that he did something which he did not. And so, so maybe you're here and you've been in the unfortunate situation where someone slandered you. Someone's accused you of doing something that you're innocent of, right? It, it doesn't take long. It, is, it doesn't even have to be a bold claim for our own sense of justice to rise up within us. And we want to set the record straight, right? It, it could be like just a line or two of something we said, and we want to set the record straight. Imagine the God of the universe being lied against. Verse 16, Paul says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's just reinforcing their logic. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, without resurrection, listen, we have no salvation. Your faith is empty. So here's my second observation. Jesus' resurrection means that we are not defined by guilt and shame. If Jesus had not been raised, we're still in our sins. And so many times we think of sin as just um, purely in personal terms or purely uh, of what um, specifically offends God, and we compartmentalize, right? right? So sin is when I curse the person who cut me off at highway, uh, or sin is when I have a lustful thought. But let me ask you this. What does sin produce? What does sin produce? If you were here last week, Derek talked about, Derek took us all the way back to the beginning of Adam and Eve. Right, Adam and Eve in the garden, and they sin. And what immediately happens after that? Yeah, they feel guilt and shame, right? They see their nakedness, and they feel ashamed. Right? They, they sense their guilt, and they hide from God, Scripture says, because they were afraid. See, sin always leads to guilt and shame. And so even if you don't feel like you've sinned, even if you don't feel like you've sinned a lot, we've all felt the weight of guilt, haven't we? Many of you know my dad's health has been failing for, for, for a while now. He was on kidney dialysis for many years before he got a transplant. He's got congestive heart failure. He has diabetes that's just destroyed his body. He's got a host of many other things. And I was uh, sitting with him after a hospital stay a few years ago, um, and he looked at me at one point and he says, Bryce, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God punishing me? Now, his doctors, right, and we had told him, hey, the reason you're here is actually because of, like, 50 years of poor health choices. And yet, the question at the back of his mind was, am I being punished for something? Am I being punished for something? It's all around us, right? Some of you have walked through infertility or miscarriage, and, and maybe the nagging question is, am I being punished for something I did? Is God doing this to me? Or maybe you have children, but they've wandered spiritually, or they're not walking in the way you thought they should go. And you're wondering, man, am I being punished for something I did? Maybe your career or your life is not where you thought it would be, and you feel sense the shame of just, you, you feel embarrassed when people ask you how life is. Or you, you don't even know where to start. You wonder, did I bring this upon myself? And this doesn't just come upon us as we're adults, right? It starts at the earliest ages. When my daughter was around a year old, 
she was playing in our living room, and um, sweet girl, uh, she she was playing in the living room by herself. My wife was in the kitchen, and uh, she saw my daughter climbed up onto the step and then climbed up onto our coffee table. It was sitting on top of the coffee table, just loving life, just playing. And at some point, she looked up and saw Robin, my wife, looking at her. And Robin said, her eyes got big, and she just burst into tears. Burst into tears. And I was like, I could see the shame, the sense of, like, I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. We had never, we never scolded her. She had never climbed on top of the, on top of the coffee table before. But there's a sense of, like, I've done something wrong. Like, there's something deeply baked and embedded within us. And we also wield it intentionally as a weapon, right? We embarrass people, or we make them feel guilty or ashamed of the things that they've done or not done or said or not said, right? So, friends, when, when was the last time you posted a negative Google or Yelp review for poor service that you received, you blasted a company on Twitter, we not only feel the effects of guilt and shame, we wield it ourselves as a weapon, right? There's so many examples I can go on and on and on, but all of this points to something deeper than just a psychological phenomena, right? It's, not just, it's more than just, hey, this is a psychological phenomena that we experience. It's the fact that we're creatures marred by sin. And so our guilt and our shame actually point us to the gravitational weight that sin has on our lives, of the reality not only of our wrongdoings, listen, but of sin at large, the sin of others, and so we do all sorts of things to deal with that shame and guilt, right? We, we blame shift. We redefine what, what sin is or what's wrong to try to minimize our feelings. We escape into other distractions so we don't have to feel shame. We try to be perfect to avoid the feeling of guilt and shame, or uh, we try to do enough good things to absolve ourselves. And yet the thing that we can't escape, the thing we can't avoid, is the ultimate fruit of sin, which is death. The ultimate outcome of sin is death. That's why resurrection is so critical. Listen, if all Jesus did was just die for our sins, right? If all he did was just die for our sins, then we'd still be in our sins. That's what Paul's saying right here. That's what Paul's argument is. Because the curse of sin is death. And so if Jesus didn't rise, then the curse of sin still weighs on us, and we're still in our sins. And there's no solution for the feelings of guilt and shame that we feel. But, because of the resurrection of Jesus, death itself has been defeated. We have true forgiveness of our sins. That means that if you are in Christ, you and I don't have to bear the weight of our guilt and our shame and our fears. We don't have to walk around wondering if God is punishing us, uh, punishing us for something that we did or, or said or feeling shame about something we did in the past or something we did yesterday because our sin has actually been forgiven. It's actually been taken care of and has no power on us. And what that means is we can actually walk in freedom. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin can't condemn you. The mobs can't condemn you. You are free in Christ. You can live in confidence knowing that Jesus has not only paid for your sins, he's removed it as far as the east is from the west. We are not defined by our guilt and shame. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are a new person. You are a free person. Verse 17, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. My third observation is this. Christian hope is not temporary. 
It's not temporary. See, rather than being empty and vain and worthless, the resurrection means that our faith, our preaching, our lives are full of meaning and significance. Our lives are not marked by sin and shame and guilt and death, but instead marked by a story of hope and of significance. Right? Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning that we actually do have hope in this life. Right? There is actual hope in this life. And we're all looking for hope, right? all sorts of places. Hope that we won't head into a recession. Hope that you won't get laid off. Hope that your sickness will be healed. Hope that you get married. Hope that the diet works this time. Hope that you get into the college that you want. Hope that the cheeseburger you ate last night won't give you indigestion. Right? We're all walking around with hope. And sometimes what we hope for comes true. But there's an always an end to it. You hope until what you're expecting comes to pass, or you're sorely disappointed, or you wait and hope until death. But Christian hope is that indeed there is hope in this life, right? This resurrection shows us that God is working even in the darkest and ugliest of our situations. And so we have hope that the Holy Spirit is working in us to help us look more and more like Jesus. And we'll get to experience joy as we walk in obedience to Jesus. We have hope that God is working for our good and his glory. And so we can love our spouse who's hard to love because Christ loved us when we were unlovable. We can persevere in suffering because we know that God is actually producing something in us. We can give generously because God owns everything. And if he cares for the flowers of the fields and the birds of the air, how much more so does he care for his own children? And we have hope as we experience the church as a gathering of other believers to live in unity as the body of Christ. And we have hope that death does not have the final word. We have hope that death doesn't have the final word. And we're going to explore this more in the, in the weeks to come. But look, here's the thing. The world wants hope, right? Everyone wants hope. It's not just Christians. Even if you're not a Christian, you want something more, something that gives significance to your life. I bet everyone in this room knows Steve Jobs, right? Steve Jobs uh, co-founded Apple. He was the CEO. He had everything, right? Like richer than Solomon. He had the world in his hands. And uh, he um, he was a Buddhist and towards the end of his life started struggling with the idea of God and the meaning of life. And Walter Isaacson wrote a biography on Steve Jobs. And and in it, he um, recalls encounter towards the end of Steve's life. He says, I remember sitting in his backyard in his garden one day, and he started talking about God. He said, sometimes I believe in God, sometimes I don't. I think it's 50-50 maybe. But ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more, and I find myself believing a bit more. Maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife, that when you die, it doesn't all just disappear. The wisdom you've accumulated Somehow it lives on. Then he paused for a second and he said, yeah, but sometimes I think it's just like an on-off switch. Click and you're gone. He paused again and he said, and that's why I don't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. Can you you hear the longing here? The longing. He wants to believe in God because he wants there to be something more. And yet what he's filled with at the end is wishful thinking at best and hopelessness at worst. That he'll close his eyes and everything will go black forever. 
friends, the gospel offers hope for real life, but it's not just wishful thinking. It's a solid promise that's based on a historical event. It's the promise that what has happened to Jesus will one day happen to you and I who are in Christ Jesus. The resurrection guarantees that. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about what kind of bodies we're going to get and what that's going to look like. But if you're in Christ, you have what theologian N.T. Wright calls the hope of life after life after death. And that the deepest longings of your heart are met now and will be met ultimately when we're raised in new glorified bodies. Friends, our hope is not temporary. If you are in Christ, you have hope today in the midst of whatever you're going through and you have hope in the life that's to come. Paul says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Right? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection changes everything. So the question now is, what do you do now? How now do you live? The late pastor, Tim Keller, pastor out of New York, he wrote a best-selling book called The Reason for God. And in it, he says this. He says, sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is how the first hearers felt who heard reports of the resurrection. They knew that if it was true, it meant we can't live our lives any way we want. It also meant that we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. In fact, Christ has been raised. And if you're not in Christ, you can experience the power of the resurrection even today. Friends, the good news of the resurrection is one of radical grace. It's one of radical grace because resurrection is one thing that we can't control, we can't manipulate, we can't produce on our own. Right? Our hope is exclusively in God who brings, resurrect, who brings resurrection. Who brings resurrection. It's a story of grace. Who, a God who takes away your sin and guilt and shame and offers you hope everlasting. Friends, would you come to him? Come to him and experience this radical grace today. Let's pray.